This is the written word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we consider your word tonight, we ask that you would bind it to the hearts of your people, that you would uplift them, that you would uh, sear on their hearts the certainty of your love for us and the certainty that you wash us completely sin, free from all our sin. And Lord, encourage us to put on that same kind of love. In the name of your Son, Jesus, who washes us clean from all our sins. Amen. Well, I want to start with a question for you all today. And once again, it's a rhetorical question, so you don't need to raise your hands. Uh, And this is a question that I think that the philosophers and the wisest men in all religions and in 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 all the different cultures in our world have tried to ask. And they've tried to answer. And over and over and over again, they've got it wrong. What is love? What is love? The typical answer to this question usually revolves around some kind of mutual exchange of goods, feelings that you may have for a particular individual, maybe your wife, maybe your husband, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, maybe a close sense of kinship with a friend, but those are often in the definitions of our world tied to what I get or what you give me. And I think that if this isn't concrete enough, It was just the other day I was getting my hair cut. Thank you for noticing. And I was speaking with my barber, and and I've been getting to know him over the past couple of months, and he said to me, I really like to surround myself with people that uh, are, are on the same plane as me, that are really interested in developing themselves, developing their careers, uh, that are really self-motivated, that are, are um, high, high work ethic individuals. I don't really have time for uh, people that aren't on that mission plan. And he used Michael Jordan as an example. And he went on to say that this was the same reason that he divorced his wife. Because she wasn't in it with him. The mutual exchange of goods. What are you giving to me? How are you enhancing my life? If not... I have no obligation to be with you. I have no obligation to retain a friendship with you. But Jesus, Jesus changes the game here in John chapter 13, doesn't he? He redefines love from a feeling or a thing that just sort of happens or the mutual exchange of goods to something entirely different. Jesus defines love in a way that is foolishness to our world. His love revolves around an action, and it is an action of humiliating sacrifice. And so we learn today in an enacted parable that Jesus reveals the way of glory, communicating his love for his people by washing them as a servant does, and he then invites his people to have hearts characterized by the same kind of humble love that he has shown to them. And we're going to learn this in three ways. The first is the glory of love in verses 1 through 3. The second is the love expressed in verse 4 through 11. And the third is the love commanded in verses 12 through 17. So first, the glory of love. We tend to be rather impatient, I think, when it comes to uh, stories. This is why we like to sparks note things or wait maybe until a Netflix show is completely out so we don't have to wait week to week just like they used to when I was young. No, we like to have the full thing. We want to know what happens. We want to know it now. But John is doing something in the beginning, uh, first three verses of this chapter, and I want to draw your attention to the narrative detail. The first thing that he tells us is this, before the feast of the Passover... And this clues us in. This tells us something. Because we're entering a second portion of the book, as we'll consider in a moment, where uh, Jesus is going into passion. He's about to be crucified. 
And John is predicating that Jesus is the true Paschal Lamb. He's painting Jesus as the true Paschal Lamb. And if we remember back to the Exodus story, the people of Israel would take and prepare a lamb, and they would paint uh, the, blood, the blood on the doorpost of their home, which symbolized that the blood of the lamb washed, it atoned for their sin. Symbolized and pointed forward to the true Paschal Lamb, Jesus, whose blood would, hint, hint, wash us completely clean. But Jesus also knew that his hour had come to depart. That's the second thing that it tells us. And as I just mentioned, this is a shift in the narrative story of John. Uh, we move from the book of signs, the first half of John's gospel, to the second half, the book of glory. Now, the book of signs is characterized by Jesus' public ministry, where in an increasing fashion, with greater and greater clarity, he displays his identity through his signs. And we've now entered the second portion in John chapter 13, where we're told uh, that, where we're indicated it to at least, that it's time for Jesus to reveal his glory to the uttermost. And so we wonder, what does this hour symbolize? Why does that symbolize this? Well, it indicates a tension between the Pharisees and between Jesus as his signs ramp up in clarity. And it culminates in the onset of this hour when they will arrest him. Over and over in John, we read that uh, his time had not come to depart, so the Pharisees didn't arrest him. So it's now saying that his time has come to depart, and we're thinking, well, it must be the time when the Pharisees are going to arrest Jesus. The hour culminates when Jesus is arrested. It's now time to display, therefore, his glory uh, as he's exalted in glory on the cross. Glory is about to be on the big screens. There is no stopping it. He will be exalted in glory before all the people of Israel. And how is that glory manifested? It's manifested by his love. Because as the text also tells us, having loved his own, it says. Having loved his own. That is, up until this point already, Jesus has loved them in everything that he has done in his life. From his incarnation to every miracle that he has done to every word that he has spoken, he has communicated his love to his people. But it also tells us that he's loved them to the end. And this means two things. It's a preview of what's to come. To the end of his own life, Jesus has loved them. And it also means that in the fullest extent that one can possibly love, Jesus has loved his people. There is nothing more Jesus could have done in his advent on earth to express his love to his people than what he has done so far for his disciples and for his people. Nothing more can be done. And we know his love for us in this way because we're also told what? We're also told that he has a divine mission, that he has been sent from God and that he is going back to God, that he came down from heaven. He will go back up to a cross. He will descend down into the grave and he will, ascend to, he will be resurrected and ascend to the right hand of the Father. It's a callback to what we know as Pactum Salutis, the covenant of redemption. The covenant that God made with himself before the foundations of the world to save and elect people whom he chose out of the world. That's Jesus' mission here. He has come to save those whom he loves. 
And with the work completed, he will receive the glory that is due to his name as the Son of Man. And nothing, nothing can keep this work from being accomplished. Not even the one who is there to betray him can keep him from displaying his glory and from expressing his love to his people. And so the presence of that enemy sets our story today in the context of a cosmic battle. And his weapon of choice, people of God, to win that battle, his weapon of choice is humble servant love. How is he going to complete his mission and express his love to us through humiliation? Because the way of glory, where Jesus is exalted, is on the cross. For Christ came down for his pre-incarnate glory to take on lowly flesh in order to vanquish this beast. So the onset of the hour means it's time for glory to be revealed. And it's going to be done in the context of a cosmic battle, and it is going to communicate in the clearest and fullest way possible the love that Christ has for his people. And now we wonder, what is maybe the character of his love for us? In what manner does he show his love to us? How, then, is love expressed? We come to verse 4 and 5. He rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. John describes this in a very, very deliberate way, doesn't he? He tells us each thing that Jesus has done from the moment that he stands up to the moment that he gets to the bowl. I'd like to take, draw your attention back to some of the context of chapter 12 uh, to, to maybe sort through some of this. Uh, in chapter 12, he has just raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, having raised Lazarus from the dead, they go from Bethany into Jerusalem, and as they enter Jerusalem, uh, you remember the triumphal entry. He rides in on a donkey, and the people, the crowds of Israel, are gathered to wave before him palm branches, crying out, Hosanna, meaning save us. The crowds are growing and growing and growing at an exponential rate. Even the Greeks are beginning to believe in this guy, Jesus. They're wondering who he is. There's a voice that comes down from heaven in the latter portion of the chapter that says, I have glorified you and I will glorify you again. Then we move into today's events at this Passover meal and we remember that the nature of the Passover supper is that you only enjoy a Passover supper with people that you are what would be called covenant kin with. People that you share a very, very close bond with. You don't just have a Passover meal with anybody. It would be like a bride on her wedding day. Does her father enter that room? Does the groom enter that room? Or only those invited? It's an exclusive event. Then we remember Luke's comments in Luke chapter 22, verses 24, where he tells us that the disciples were arguing about which of them was to be the greatest. Who's going to be Jesus' right-hand man? Who's going to sit next to him? Who is going to be in the seat of honor? And this makes a little bit more sense, I think, when we remember that the Jewish expectation of a Messiah was not the Messiah that Jesus came to be. The Messiah that the people of Israel congregated as Jesus entered Jerusalem, and I think we can say even his disciples in some regard up until this point, the Messiah they believed would come would, was one that would liberate Israel from Greco-Roman oppression. 
He would restore the glory of Israel. Jesus, they think, is this military leader. And the time has arrived, they think, for Israel to be exalted. Jesus is here to save them. And who are this military deliverer's chief advisors and counselors and helpers? Tax collectors and fishermen. The same guys who just witnessed the events of chapter 12 are eating this intimate meal that you only eat with family. They've seen the crowds. They've heard the voice from heaven. Who's going to be his right-hand man? They're sitting pretty, they think. They have a seat at this guy's table, and they want the seat of honor. Fishermen and tax collectors arguing about which of them is the greatest. And meanwhile, Jesus, meanwhile, Jesus is about to wash their feet. And so they all take their seats, and they watch Jesus deliberately stand up. They watch him move to the side of the room. The bowl and the towel were ready, but nobody stirred. After a long journey into Jerusalem, walking through these dirty streets, it was a custom, it was known that before you eat such a sacred meal, you wash your feet. You're going to eat the Passover lamb with dirty feet. That's obscene. It's disgusting. And as they watch him move, he lays aside his outer garments. One by one, he takes each piece off, and in a flash, in a moment, he transforms before their eyes from the image of their king to the image of a servant. But not just a servant, a slave. We don't like that word. A slave. A role reserved for Gentile dogs. That's what they thought of what Jesus was doing. Here is their glorious king playing the role of a slave. They know what's about to happen. And they're looking around the room. They're thinking, you should be doing this. You should be doing this. You should be doing this. You can imagine the angry glares. You can imagine the embarrassment, the awkwardness, the shame. Uh, it reminds me in some way of when we were children, my mother would maybe go out to grab some groceries and say, um, I'm going to go run to the store to pick up dinner for tonight. Can you please unload the dishwasher before I return? And even though there were six of us, the dishwasher was still not unloaded when she got home. And who ends up unloading the dishwasher? My mother. There's shame. We should have done it. The disciples should have washed one another's feet. And mind you, the person now washing the feet of his disciples is the same one that John the Baptist said, the one who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He is now washing the feet of his disciples. And then what happens? We come to verse 6 through 10. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? There's incredulity there's shock in his tone. Do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Peter responds, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus says, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean but not every one of you. I want you to picture this with me for a second. Peter's feet, 
Jesus Christ. Peter's crusted feet from a long journey, the Lord of glory. Peter's dirty, crusty feet from a 10-mile or so journey from Bethany up into Jerusalem, feet that were regularly used to traveling in a dirty, dry, arid environment, so they're, they're callous, dirt is caked onto them. He's just walked through the dirty streets of Jerusalem, presumably, which has trash and all other sorts of things that might be disgusting to us to walk through today with open-toed shoes. The Lord of glory, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, who the angels exclaim is worthy to open the scroll, who is worthy to receive honor and power and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. Peter's feet. I don't think we get how gross this is. It would be like walking around a dairy for a few hours or a few days with no shoes on. Then have this king wash your feet. How does Peter respond? Don't you know who you are? It's a rebuke. You're supposed to save us. You're the king imbued with glory and power and honor. Stand up. And what does Jesus say? Peter, you don't get it now, but afterwards you will. Reminds me, when I read this and I started meditating on it, it reminded me of Habakkuk when he goes before the Lord. He complains about the injustices that he sees in Israel, about the oppression of of foreign empires, unjust, unrighteous empires ruling over Israel. And the Lord responds to Habakkuk and he says, "You, you cannot begin to understand the work that I am doing in your day. You wouldn't believe if told. Peter, you don't understand now. But soon you will understand. And how does Peter respond to this? Well, initially it's an unwillingness to accept what Christ says in his plan. He displays his full misunderstanding of the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. You shall never wash my feet. Peter is unwilling to let his Savior serve him. He's okay with Jesus being his Lord and his Master. He has just confessed that truth. But he did not understand that his Savior must serve him. Peter expected a Messiah that would conform to his idea of what kind of deliverer he wanted. His agendas are what form his ideas of the Messiah. And that doesn't sound too unfamiliar, does it? This was us. It was our spiritual pride which raged against the humble love and service of Christ. And it's that pride which raged against Jesus there in that story which Jesus rebukes now in unbelievers and in believers alike. Do not resist the cleansing work of Christ. You cannot. Do not be disgruntled. disgruntled. Do not be upset. Do not be angry. When his work in your life does not conform to your idea of what you want from your mediator. Peter did not understand the way of the Savior and the Deliverer is not pompous pride and show, but humble service expressed in perfect love to his people. And so if you are washed by him, you can be confident that he is exactly the kind of deliverer that you need. 
And it is his humility that shapes the expression of love. And it is that love through his humility through which the glory and the majesty of God in Christ Jesus is most fully displayed. Even here today, where our, while our culture is out gathering candy, dressing up in costumes, partying, engaging in all sorts of debauchery, where are we, week in and week out, in the ordinary worship of our triune God? We meet in the ordinary, weak people called out of the world. We are not strong. That's how our king operates. That's how he loves us. Jesus, in washing, in the washing of our blood, uh, 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 in the washing with his blood, excuse me, and his humiliation on the cross, he receives to himself and accomplishes glory as the Son of Man. It's a glory that our world does not understand. And he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Recall Philippians chapter 2 says, Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not, take equal, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped that is taken. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in human likeness, in the likeness of men, being found in human form, excuse me. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus responds to Peter and he says to him, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And once again, I'd like to draw your attention back to the Exodus. There was the tent of meeting in the tabernacle where the Holy of Holies is. If you did not wash before you entered the tent of meeting, you would be met with uh, judgment in the presence of God. You had to wash before you could enter. But outside the tent of meeting, there was this bronze basin, this bronze bowl that the priests would wash to enter into this tent of meeting. And what is this bronze basin? Jesus. Jesus Christ is your bronze basin. He washes you so that you are pure and so that you appear perfect before the judgment of sin that is inherent in the presence of God. And if Jesus does not wash us clean, we cannot enter that presence. You have no part with him. So to be washed by Christ is to be an inheritor of something with him. It is to be invited into this special meal, this meal of covenant kin. It is to be invited to his table, to his new covenant community where we will dwell with God in his presence for all eternity, dining with him at the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's what this is pointing forward to. Peter responds again. He says, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And so he finally gets it in some sense. He understands what Jesus is saying in terms of his union with him, but he misunderstands the sign because he's now, he now is far too joyfully exuberant to participate in and be washed by the Lord. And it could be suggested that this exuberant goes too far and he's misunderstanding Christ again. His request is that Jesus would wash his whole person clean, his hands, and, or his head, hands, his feet, and his head from toe to head. But the sign is that of justification through the washing of Jesus' blood. Justification 
just as if you had, have, had never sinned nor been a sinner. That's what he's declared to Peter. And so initially Peter's response is, let there be no reason for it to be said that I have no part with you. Wash every piece of me. But Jesus responds to this and he says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is completely clean. In other words, Jesus says, I am enough. If you have been bathed, you are washed completely by me. You are justified. You are declared righteous. There is no sin of yours which has, which has not been cleansed by my blood. It is a declaration. And whereas Peter formerly misunderstood the significance of the signs, he's getting it. And Jesus conveys this to them because of their faith. You are completely clean, he says to them. The justification you receive, I have symbolized to you, and the subsequent foot washing, far from in keeping with the spirit of the Reformation, signifying some sort of cleansing that we do, or some additional cleansing or purity that we need to submit in order to enter the gates of heaven, is rather a reference to the continual process in the Christian life of confessing our sins and of receiving renewal through the operation of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And the place where that happens is where we are right now. The call to worship, God's greeting, baptism, the Lord's Supper, the word preached and proclaimed, the benediction. Just as you rinse your feet after a short walk, on a dusty road, so too you return to God's house for continual cleansing. You don't need anything else. Do you know what love looks like then? Love looks like the Lord of glory washing his disciples' feet. It's a wonderful, wonderful display of the glory of God. Why? Because his love is so great that he is willing to humble himself, take the form of a servant, and wash his people clean. How radical is this love in our day and age? Can you think of anything like it? I don't think we can. Because what's more, as verse 11 tells us, Jesus washed even Judas's feet. Even the one who was there to betray him, Christ was willing to wash. How radical is that? In his humiliating acts, then, you will know his love. And in this love, you will see the, the, the glory of the one who, Hebrews says, is the radiance of God's glory. And it is his love that accomplishes salvation for us. Verse 10, we are completely clean. If you are his, not even your ignorance, not even your misunderstandings, can keep Jesus from washing you completely clean. But Jesus does not just leave it at a declaration of their place with him or that they are clean. He tells them what it means for them practically. He gives them a command. We could phrase it like this. What does it mean for us practically? What does Christ's example in the foot washing mean for us practically as those washed by him? Well, Jesus asked the disciples, do you understand what I have done to you? In verse 12, and then in verse 13, he establishes his identity before he gives them his command. He says, you are right. I am teacher. I am Lord. 
And if servant love is the means through which you are reconciled to me, and it's the means through which Christ displays his glory to us, and it's the means through which he makes us partakers of this covenant family to call him Lord, then so too can't we serve one another. If he can do that. And so he establishes his identity. Though perhaps they misunderstood at this time who he was, he takes their titles and he reappropriates them. He says, you're right, I am. That's the divine title. The name that God revealed himself to Moses with. I am. If I then, your Lord, the great I am, can wash you, can serve you, then verse 14 to 15, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. You see, Christ gives both the example and the pattern for the Christian life. This, this is what the Christian life and character are like that you love one another in humble service, actually partaking in the new covenant community that Christ has established. And get this, it's because you are a part of that new covenant community, it's because you have been washed by Him. It's because you are a partaker with Him, that you have been cleansed by Him, that He now issues this command to love like this. No task, no task is beneath us. In verse 16 to 17, John writes, Truly, that Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If the sender can do it, so can the sent. If the boss can do it, so can the employee. Let humble servanthood characterize the posture of our hearts to friend, enemy, brother, sister, believer, and unbeliever alike. Jesus has created a fellowship of the cleansed, a community of people who are characterized by this kind of humility. And is it not fitting then that we express this same kind of Christ-like service and love to one another? You know, perhaps we often think that Others might not be deserving of this kind of love for us. And I ask you, was, um, were we deserving of this kind of love from Christ when he came down for us? And I want to point out to you that Christ washed Judas' feet. I was shocked one time when I preached this sermon. I've preached this at many churches. Um, I would call it in one of my, my favorite passages to preach. And I was speaking with an individual after the service who was telling me about a relationship they had with another person. And I asked if they would like me to reach out, and they said, no, I want nothing to do with them. We're called to love our enemies. We're called to love the same people who with the same heel that we just washed, as Luke tells us in his gospel, would then turn and betray us. In putting on this kind of love, you are blessed, verse 17 tells us, because you are actively partaking in the reality that you have a seat at Christ's table. And that table, that table is the wedding feast of the Lamb that we look forward to when the final enemy death is conquered. Jesus isn't just the exemplar 
He isn't just showing us what to do. He's the one who did it and the one who helps us to do it by washing us clean. And so if the way that Christ accomplished his redemptive work for us is through humble self-service and sacrifice, and it is through these sacrificial acts on the humiliating cross that he displays his glory, will the path of our future glorification not also include this humble disposition? Will the path of our future glorification not also include this humble disposition? So how how does the glory of God manifest itself to us in Christ Jesus in love? In what kind of love? In servant love. Love characterized by humility. The servanthood of love, love of Jesus washes us completely clean and makes us have a seat at his table. He is so desirous to make his love known to you that he would associate himself with even the dirtiest and most disgusting pieces of you to wash you clean. There is no height nor depth, not even the presence of Satan in the great cosmic battle that will keep Christ from his mission to wash you clean and to love you in humble service and to make you a partaker of that celestial city. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what great confidence we can have that it is not our works that make us clean, but it is the work of a humble servant who came down from heaven to take on lowly human flesh, to wash us clean and make us right with God. We thank you for this grace, Lord, and we ask that the truth of it would grip our hearts in this week and the weeks to come, that we would be uh, encouraged and put this same love on in the way that we interact with others that they may know that we are Christians by your love. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.